knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is episode 179. And today we're going to talk about three fly fishing lies, three lies that are told in fly fishing and they're lies when they're treated like they're the absolute truth. They might be someone's opinion. They might even be someone's preference. They might even be someone's favorite thing to do, but to say that it's the way that it is, I'd say that's a lie. Now, if you take strong objection to one of the opinions that I've shared in this particular episode of the podcast or in any other podcast or of anything else written in Casting Across, or if you like it, then feel free to write in Matthew at castingacross.com. I'm always excited to get inquiries and criticisms and comments of anything I say or anything that I write. And actually, now's a really good time to do it because next week, next week's podcast is a fly fishing accusation podcast, the 10th episode. Every 10 episodes, I do a fly fishing accusation podcast where I interact with questions, comments, and thoughts that folks have because of something I've said or written on casting across fly fishing. Anyway, bringing us to our very first fly fishing lie. The very first fly fishing lie I wanted to address is that you want to fish with the lightest rod possible. You want to try to fish with the lightest rod possible specifically for the reason that you want to be able to feel the fish as much as you can. You want to line down as much as you are able such that the fish that you're fighting are going to put the most bend in your rod. Honestly, this is something I believed for a long time. This was something that I, I tried to live by. My three weight was my primary rod that I used for virtually all of my trout fishing for years and years and years until I realized that I was at a huge disadvantage when it came to casting and mending, casting accuracy, casting distance, mending fishing dry flies, mending fishing nymphs, mending fishing streamers underwater, which I know isn't technically mending, but but certain activities of stripping and guiding your fly require similar motions and manipulations to get your line and your fly to do what you want them to do. And I was at a significant disadvantage by using a three weight instead of a five weight. And what I discovered very quickly is that with that five weight, I wasn't engaging these fish that I was catching, even six, eight, 10 inch trout and reeling them in without that rod tip, even flinching. I was still feeling these fish. And this was something that I just made me realize, you know what? I've been, 
I've been chasing after this experience of having a fish bend my fly rod. And it was going to happen on a big fish, regardless of what weight rod I use, as long as I was using something reasonable. Using three, four, five, or six weights, all of my rods were going to feel those fish. And it wasn't necessarily going to look like one of those Eagle Claw ads where the rod was completely doubled over. But even with a sturdy six weight, which was a dream to cast, which I could bomb out super far, which I had a lot of accuracy with, which I was able to cast double weighted nymph rigs and larger streamers when i was tangling with a smaller fish it still was a lot of fun but getting to those fish was a much easier project now don't get me wrong i have a one weight downstairs i have a couple of two weights and a couple of three weights that i absolutely love but when i'm out on the water and i'm catching fish i'm not thinking this is so much fun because this rod is doubled over this is so much fun because this rod is bending a lot i think this is a, a, a nice casting rod it's a lot of fun to use, but every once in a while, and to be completely honest, usually on every trip when I'm fishing a one weight or I'm fishing a glass two weight or something like that, I think this is a situation where I wish I had a little bit more casting power. This is a situation where there's a hole where the flies that I can cast well with this rod are not going to be easy to cast because they have a bead head on them or just because they have a big bushy uh profile that's not super aerodynamic and if i had a three weight or a five weight i'd be able to cast much better than i could if i had this you know this little six foot fiberglass one weight and i've taken those heavier quote-unquote heavier rods i mean saying like an, an eight foot bamboo you know four weight as heavy as is a little bit silly but i've taken those rods up to those very same creeks i'm able to cast those heavier fly streamers with a little you know micro streamers you know tens and twelves with a little bit of weight on them and I'm able to cast them much better, put them exactly where I want them, and get that fish that I want. Now, here's the 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 ironic thing, I guess, or just the the thing that makes you scratch your head why you would fuss with something like this. Generally speaking, the fish that you're going after with those larger flies in those more difficult to reach spots are going to be your larger fish, so they're going to put a bend in that heavier rod anyway. So, just something to think about. Uh, another place where I notice this is in the salt. I mean, I have no problem fishing with a nine weight, even if I'm fishing for schoolie stripers. It's those fish are going to challenge me if they get into the current, even with a nine weight. I'm just not probably have to worry about my knots as much. I'm, you know, I'm still going to have to fight them. My arm's going to be tired. My shoulder's going to be tired after catching a handful of them with a nine weight, even though a seven weight would be totally fine. The same thing with warm water species. And again, this is the, the thing that really I want to emphasize and drive home is you're going to be casting a lot more than you're going to be catching fish. So you want to enjoy the experience of casting something like a big slider or popper or diver with a seven weight or eight weight, even if you're only catching moderate size panfish and bass. That is what's more important because that's what you're going to be doing more of. So it is a lie. It is a mistruth if you want to be a little bit more diplomatic to say that you need to try to aim for the lightest weight rod and line that you can get away with to enjoy your fly fishing experience. It's just not true. Find a rod that is a good balance for what you're going to be fishing, where you're not just blowing fish out of the water and every time you set the hook, the thing goes flying over your shoulder, but find something that you're going to be able to cast well and that you're going to be able to make delicate and you know appropriate presentations with. And that is the weight 
rod that you should you should have or carry two nothing wrong with carrying two rods strap a second one to your pack and and go for it if people give you weird looks then i mean that's that's on them so that's the first fly fishing lie second fly fishing lie you got to use big flies to catch big fish now this is absolutely a modern misconception now that's not to say that people weren't using big flies 20 years ago i just wasn't as aware and social media probably has a lot to do with this of people using pike flies and musky flies to try to catch big trout all the big trout that i knew that were caught by people were caught on midges were caught on uh, little tiny nymphs were caught on scuds and sow bugs and little tiny you know aquatic crustaceans you look at some of like the world record fish that were caught in uh you know they've since been eclipsed but some of the really big fish that were caught in the uh, arkansas rivers the the white river and little red river they were caught on little tiny uh you know nymphs that imitated little tiny bugs and the reason is that's what these fish eat most of the time. They aren't in the business of chasing after prey. They are waiting for things to flow into their mouths. Now, of course, you hop online today, you're going to see all sorts of 16 and 18-inch fish with giant triple articulated streamers dangling out of their jaws. So I'm not saying that big flies don't catch big fish. They absolutely do. But you are able to catch very large fish on little dry flies more likely little nymphs but i think the best thing is tiny streamers because that's the best of both worlds in, in that you're getting a a food source that you are maybe fishing like a nymph but it is imitating something more meaty something more protein rich something that might get a larger fish to move out of its hole to chase after ever so slightly but it's not being stripped violently across its face now again that's a great way to catch fish a, a, a mouse is a great way to catch a big trout but i think it is a lie to say that you have to use a mouse fly or a giant fly that covers the majority of your palm and forearm to catch a large trout uh, some of the largest trout that i've caught uh, have been on really small flies uh, in fact I think I've only caught one 20 inch fish, 20 plus inch fish on a quote unquote big fly. All the rest of my 20 inch plus trout have been on little midges, have been on nymphs. And some of that is because of where I've fished uh, and, and, and fished for big fish. Um, it's been in the, the Catskills. It's been in the limestone creeks of Pennsylvania, and it's been in the uh, TVA rivers of the South. And there I just fished what was most at hand which was midges and small um small nymphs and the fish had no problem eating them and i i'm very content in the size of the fish that i caught using those those flies but some of the other fish that i caught were using small streamers fished like nymphs so they were dead drifted little marabou bodied critters that looked like some sort of you know whether it was bait fish or stonefly or some other big buggy nymph that was tumbling and i'm i'm guilty of using my rod tip to make things dance a little bit you know it goes back to my banjo minnow days of trying to elicit strikes from fish in, in that way and i found especially in some of these streams and again you think about the places that i just mentioned catskills south central pennsylvania uh, these are wary fish these are fish that have probably seen somebody jerk a game changer across their face sometime in the last couple of weeks and they 
although fish aren't geniuses, fish get wise to things like that. And they probably don't want to be disturbed because in these smaller rivers, they have a lot less places to hide. And so chances are if somebody's fishing a big streamer like that around them, they're also probably disturbing the water through wading or, or accessing the river or something like that. And so taking a more finesse approach is probably a better way to entice some of these larger fish in these pressured streams to even come out and consider taking a look at your fly. Um, not a hard and fast rule, but again, it's a lie. It's a mistruth to say that you need to use giant flies to catch giant fish. Um, one quick story. There was uh, three or four large fish finning uh, under an overhaming branch that I had been targeting for weeks. And I knew that at least one of them was 20 inches, just a brown trout that was, you could see its back whenever it fed, it was feeding on, on subsurface midges. So, so little tiny flies that were right in that surface film. And you could tell because you'd see its nose, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't see the underside of its nose. Uh, and, and so you wouldn't see any white of its mouth. You were just, you were just seeing the curve of this fish's, uh, top jaw as it kind of came up, uh, and, and slurped. And, but what followed was it's kind of the hump behind its, its neck. And then, you know, the fish have neck, you know what I mean? The hump behind its head and then it's back. I mean, two separate things. This is like Loch Ness monster style. And then the, uh, it's back, uh, back fin and then its tail. And they would all come out, out just kind of making the water bold, not necessarily breaking the surface tension. And so I'm watching this fish feed and I'm thinking there is absolutely no reason to throw a big streamer at this fish. Uh, anytime that a bird would poop in the water upstream, anytime that a squirrel would, would, um, startle something up in the, in the, uh, the tree above it and knock some pine needles down, then the things would go silent. All of those fish, that really big fish and a couple of his buddies would go silent for, uh, a good 15, 20 minutes at, at least. Sometimes it would put them down for a really long period of time and I, I wouldn't have another shot at them. Uh, that day, but they were just in a really awkward spot. So it was all I could do to not cast a streamer from upstream, allow it to swing in front of their faces and then slowly retrieve it. Um, and I did that a few times, but I got zero response. And all I did was put these fish down. These fish had it literally made in the shade. They were feeding off of uh, these midges. And then, uh, I I'm pretty sure they're feeding off terrestrials, just given the stream that I was on. Uh, and the fact they were right under this tree, they had perfect cover, big undercut bank, um, but they were content to be out in the middle of the stream morning, afternoon, and, and evening feeding, uh, just below the surface. And so I said, okay, this is how I got a fish for them. I can't throw a big meaty streamer at these big fish. They don't want that for whatever reason, whether it be some trauma they experienced in fish childhood or whatever, they don't want a big streamer. And so I had to get into a really awkward position. I had to make a bunch of awkward casts. I had to mess up a few days in a row. Then finally, I got that little, uh, it was a Griffith's gnat, I believe. Uh, it was a Griffith's gnat or just kind of a, a generic midge, just a little, bit of, a little bit of hackle on like a size 22 fly. Just greased the, the tippet maybe four or five inches above the fly, greased it for about a foot, and just let that thing drift down and wait until you see that nose, give it a beat, set the hook, which is... One of the hardest things in the world to do is to wait once you know that fish has taken that, that fly in your mouth. And uh, then it was off to the races. Great fish, beautiful fish, big, deep-bodied trout. And uh, it, it just reminded me that 
it would have been a lot easier to catch this fish with a streamer, but the fish didn't want to be caught with a streamer. The fish wasn't going to, wasn't going to go for it. And it was a big fish that wanted a tiny, tiny little fly. So that's the second lie that big fish require big flies. Just not the case. Just not true. You will catch big fish on big flies, but you will catch big fish, medium sized fish, small fish, and exceptionally big fish using normal size flies because uh, a lot of fish, even big brown trout, like I said, uh, that are generally thought of as being pecivorous as, as chasing uh, uh, lots of big bait fish, are happy to uh, sip subsurface uh, dry fly uh, imitations. All right, so that's the second one. Again, the first one was try to fish with the lightest rod possible. And here's the third one. And stick with me. You know what I talk about on this podcast. I don't get into stuff that is super controversial, but I just want to throw this out there. Uh, the third lie is I'm just a fly fisher. I'm not political. I'm just a fly fisher. I'm not political. Everything goes back to politics. So I'm not talking about partisan politics right now. I'm not talking about some hot button issue that is on Fox News, that is on CNN, that uh, even one of the big conservation organizations, whether they be like super legitimate and uh, they've got a brick and mortar somewhere or they're some fly by night thing online has been talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. If you are an outdoors person, you have a political voice and impact bare minimum by buying a fishing license. You are contributing to the state. You are contributing, if you're fishing in certain places, to the federal government. And in doing so, you're engaging in something political. You're engaging with the state. And at the end of the day, that's what politics is. Uh, if you give any money towards a conservation organization, whether it be Trout Unlimited or whatever you know else you could find, you are engaged in some sort of political way. And you might say, oh, it's only a few cents out of my $30 a year dues that goes towards that. Okay. But that's a few of your cents combined with a few of your neighbor's cents and so on and so forth down the line. What you like on social media, what you follow on social media feeds into an algorithm that has outcomes somewhere. So I know I'm not going into too many particulars, but know that there's no way to passively be involved in politics in fly fishing. You are somehow, some way, always involved. So my suggestion is, if because that's a lie, that you, you can't be uninvolved or be kind of like agnostic about it, you might as well do a little bit of something. You might as well say something. Uh, if you do have a political leaning, but you kind of keep that in a different silo from your fly fishing, why not combine the two? And again, I think I talked about this uh, maybe last year, a few years ago, when things were just really getting kind of crazy and hot and heavy. Not like they're not now, but um, you know, we ought to be mature enough where somebody on the right and somebody on the left can get together and enjoy cleaning up a stream. Where somebody who voted for candidate X and somebody who voted for candidate Y can go fishing together and have a conversation about conservation together and say, you know, you want to do it in this way. I want to do it in that way. Let's have a conversation. Let's not call names. Let's not block each other online. Let's not use hyperbole and straw men and ad hominem attacks to really just show the lack of intellectual maturity that we have. Have real conversations. And honestly, I think that's the first step. Uh, I think that you, you don't even need to like be engaged in some super active activist way. I think just having conversations and being willing 
to work together and being able to uh, work towards a common cause with all sorts of people is the great greatest first step. And from there, write a letter, write an email, have a conversation, talk to somebody in local politics, talk to somebody in state politics, and make your voice heard. Say, you know what, the fact that license prices are going up is ridiculous because you know, this, this, and this haven't happened uh, in my entire region. I understand there might be something happening out in the other part of the state, but how, how can you justify this sweeping, significant license increase uh, if, if you're not going to take care of these very plain issues that we have over here? Or, you know, volunteers say, hey, you know, if, if no one's going to do it, can you help me and my friends be able to do something. You say, that's not politics, that's conservation. If you're talking to a local, state, or federal organization, you are now involved in politics. You cannot be neutral. You are either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And so I'm not saying this as somebody who is crazy involved. I'm saying this as somebody who has conversations more than anything else. Uh, There was a time when I was very involved. It's not where I am in my stage of life. But I, I think... I want to be clear that it is a lie to say that you can be involved in fly fishing and not involved in the politics of fly fishing, uh, particularly as it relates to how local, state, and federal wildlife, land, and resource agencies manage the resources that you are using. So lie number one, you have to use the lightest fly rod you can. Lie number two, you have to use big flies for big fish. Lie number three, you don't have to be political to be a fly fisher. Do you disagree? Do you think those are the truest things that have ever been said and that I'm the one who is lying to all of my listeners? Let me know, Matthew at castingacross.com. But I just thought I would throw out a few of these things and probably do another one of these podcasts in the near future because there's other things that I think are kind of taken for granted uh, as being common wisdom, but they might not be that wise. So we'll keep talking about this as we go forward. This week on castingacross.com. The first article was called, Fishing and Hunting Don't Paddle Past Canoes. Fishing and Hunting Don't Paddle Past Canoes. I love kayaks. Kayaks are great fun. I fish out of a kayak. I hunt out of a kayak. The problem with the particular kayak that I own is, first and foremost, that it's my wife's. Secondly, it is that no other people can fit into it, which becomes an issue considering I have five other people in my family. So, I started asking questions. What kind of boat should I get? Because they want to fish with me. They want to hunt with me. I don't want to discourage that. I want to encourage that. I want to enable that. So with lots of of looking, research, conversations, and a great conversation with somebody from Old Town Canoe, I have decided that a canoe is probably the way to go. So this is my thought process. This is like you get to see the ins and outs of how I arrived here in this article. So definitely check that one out and also a link to the good folks over at Old Town Canoe. And then Wednesday's article is called Fishing Rod Care, Feral Ends. Fishing Rod Care, Feral, F-E-R-R-U-L-E, not F-E-R-A-L, like wild fly rods. Uh, Fishing Rod Care, Feral Ends. So there's a lot of ways to take care of a fly rod and a lot of ways to hurt a fly rod. And I think one of the things that gets overlooked on both sides in taking care of and hurting is the male-female connections of the ferals. Uh, you can really do a lot of damage to your fly rod if you don't take care of where your rod comes together. You can fish poorly if they're not aligned properly, and you can damage your rod if they're not aligned properly. So very common sense, very simple, very applicable article on Wednesday, Fishing Rod Care, talking about the feral ends of a fly rod. 
This week's recommendation on the podcast is the Astral TR1 Mesh. So I got the Astral TR1 Mesh, which is a hybrid water and hiking shoe last fall at the very end of the season. I think I only really used it on like big fishing excursions twice. Uh, But now things are getting warmer. I was down in Florida. I took it down. I was on the flats in this shoe. I was walking around the keys in this shoe. I was in the airport in this shoe. Uh, It's a great shoe, incredibly lightweight, very quick draining, very quick drying. Uh, I was waiting on like a Thursday night through the thing in the bathroom with the fan on, woke up that morning to go to the airport, and I was able to put my socks on and slide in the shoe and be fine. Awesome shoe, super comfortable, remarkable grip. Uh, Astral, the grip they put on the bottom of their shoes is just top notch. Uh, It's comfortable without socks. It's comfortable with socks. It's comfortable walking on rocks. It's comfortable walking on sand. It's comfortable walking on the road. Just a absolutely great shoe. Comes in about 125 bucks, but it is well worth it. Antimicrobial. Um, this is going to be my wet weighting shoe for this season. It has kind of supplanted the Astral Brewer as my shoe of choice. The Brewer is still great. It's just a little bit, uh, the, 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 the TR1 mesh is a little bit more rugged. I'll put a link to not only the listing on Astral's website for the TR1 mesh, but my initial thoughts about the shoe from last fall on the show notes for this podcast page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.